Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Second Kings chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, it says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jediah, Jedidah, excuse me, the daughter of Adiah, of, let's go to verse 2, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all the ways of his father David, this is rare for a king, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, who are, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. And let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord, doing the work to repair the damages of the houses, to carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hone stone to repair the house. However, Verse 7, wouldn't this be great for your business? There need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hands because they deal faithfully. Right? Verse 8. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, look at this, they came down to the temple, I have found the book of the law of the Lord in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing to the king, bringing the king word, saying, "Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, and they delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord." Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, "Hilkiah the priest has given me a book." And Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahakam the son of Shaphan, Akabor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the, the servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all of Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shulam, the son of Tikvah, somebody else's son, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they spoke with her, and, they said to, and she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard. Look at this. Because your heart was tender... And you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, said the Lord. 
Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. Chapter 23, now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. Look at this. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord. Look at this, to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people took a stand for the covenant. This is the word of God for the people of God to which we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, Father, we thank you today that a story like this written thousands of years ago. Thank you, God, that today in 2019, we can draw life-changing application by your spirit through it. And so that's what we're here for, God. We, we open your word every week here, God. We seek to study what you have to say. And I pray, if anything, God, today, would you just remind us why? And in doing so, would you make us the kind of people who are like those we read in this story, like Josiah, King Josiah, who had a tender heart towards your word. I ask that you would produce that. God, um, I have a prepared sermon, but it's nothing without the power of your spirit. And so, again, Holy Spirit, you are why we're here. So I ask that you would fill me, Holy Spirit, and speak to us what you want to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm tired from reading that, um, but uh, a worthwhile read. What a peculiar story, but certainly a necessary and relevant story. Uh, it's interesting, last week, if you remember, we studied the person of the Holy Spirit, and we began that study by looking at the Apostle Paul. Do you guys remember this? The Apostle Paul uniquely encountered some Christians who had never even heard of who? The Holy Spirit. Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And he goes, we haven't even heard of him. Haven't even heard of the guy. Who is the Holy Spirit? Right? Unique. Last week, we encountered the people of God without the Spirit of God. And then this week, you see what we have? We have the people of God without the Word of God. Interesting story. Interesting circumstance. Years after Israel has walked away from their God. God raises up a righteous king, this guy Josiah, and his heart is set on the things of the Lord, to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. And a major part of that was to invest in the house of God, to rebuild the temple. He sends his men over to the temple to start to gather the financial resources so that they could pursue this building project. And as they go to pursue one thing, they discover another. Hokiah says, I found a book. And this isn't any old book. This is the very word of God. This is the law of God. Many people and scholars would, would believe according to the content that uh, uh, they're interpreting from it that this was the book of Deuteronomy that they encountered here, an Old Testament book in the Torah. And they bring this book back to, Nehemiah, uh, to Josiah. A similar event actually happens in Nehemiah. But they bring the book back to Josiah, and his heart is broken. 
And the side of that inward brokenness and that internal tearing is an external tearing. The guy rips his clothes off like the Incredible Hulk, right? But it's not a sign of strength. It's a sign of brokenness. This is a custom way to display humility and repentance before God. Josiah has a realization. In discovering the book of the law, it's like Josiah gets a picture of how far him and the people are from God. I feel like I can resonate with that. There's times in my life where I was so far from God that I didn't want to be near a Bible or near a Christian or near church because the second I would step around them, I would be reminded of the things in my life that needed to be surrendered to Jesus. And this is where they were. And Nehemiah, uh, Josiah, I keep calling him Nehemiah, Josiah, as a leader of these people, what a great way to lead people is to lead people in brokenness and repentance. That's a good leader. Not someone who says, I have all the answers. I have it together. You don't. Let me help you. But I'm broken, we're broken, let's go to God together. And that's what he does. And as they go before this God, in light of the book that they have found in repentance, God responds graciously. The people are re-centered and they're recommitted to God. What is the moral of this story? Think about it for a second. How sad is it that the word of God was lost among the people of God? Now, maybe today the Bible is not buried somewhere in a, in a stone building with dust on it, okay? Maybe today it's not that we're not familiar with the Bible, but I think in some ways today we can experience the same thing in our own lives. You ever had the word of God sort of lost from your life? Meaning it's not centered? It, it's not the, 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 the authority like Nehemiah that is being submitted to and broken unto? That's kind of what we have here. Now, here, here's an amazing story though, right? The word of God was lost, but this is incredible. But when the word of God was recovered and the word of God was revered, listen to this, the people of God were revived and the people of God were restored. When the word of God was lost, the people of God wandered from God, but when the word of God was recovered and revered, the people of God, they were revived and restored. Let me tell you something. This is, if you read the Bible and you look at history, this is the heritage of God's people. There seems to be this tendency in God's people for the word of God to sort of slowly but surely take backstage to other things or to kind of be off stage right. And what man tends to do with our tendency is we sort of hijack things with our own ideas and our own perspectives and we go, yeah, okay, God, this is a good thing, but what about this too? And, and what about, you know, kind of this common wisdom and this idea? And this is our heritage as God's people. Usually what happens is that God, he leads people to rediscover his word. We see it here in Josiah. We see it in the life of Nehemiah. You see it in the early church. The word of God, the apostles' doctrine, comes and takes center stage, the truth of God's word, despite what the common religious perspective was, and restoration and revival. You saw it 500 years ago during this pretty significant event called the Protestant Reformation. You had a bunch of people say, hey, I don't know if it's about what the religious people are telling us to do. I think the Bible's pretty important. And out of that, you get sola scriptura. What does the Bible have to say? And when you study the Bible, there's Martin Luther, and he's reading the Bible, and he's kind of like rediscovering the Bible. And through rediscovering God's word, he goes, all the things I thought about God and life and salvation contradict what God actually says. I don't have to work my way to him. He accomplished the work for me to be right with him. 
The just shall live by faith. And out of that, you get the Protestant Reformation. Out of that, you get soulless Christus. Out of that, you get soulless church, right? I mean, it's amazing, the implications here. When God's word is recovered and revered, God's people are revived and restored. I mean, think about your life for a second. You need revival? Do you need restoration? The question to ask is, have you lost God's word? Or have you come underneath to revere God's word? Can I tell you, this is why every Sunday here at Solace Church, we are going to study the Bible. You're going to see a big, fat Bible. Not here off to the side, you know, welcome everyone, Job chapter 12. No, front and center, we're going to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. And we're going to together seek to see what the spirit is saying through God's word. Every Sunday, that's our goal. That's our goal as a community. To devote ourselves like Israel did. Did you see that? To the study and the application of God's word. We're, we're going to revere your word. We're going to live according to your word. When the word of God has center stage, God's people are re revived and they are restored. This is the heritage of God's people. Listen, it is no wonder then. It is no wonder then that when the apostle Paul, one of the main pioneers of the Christian faith, when the apostle Paul was nearing the very end of his life and he had some final words and instructions to give his disciple Timothy the primary central encouragement that he was giving this Christian was to continue in the scriptures to continue and be devoted to the ministry of God's word in your life and through your life would you go there with me second Timothy 3 you know it's interesting last week I see some parallels here second um, Timothy 3 last week we looked at the people of God without the spirit of God. This week, it's the people of God without the word of God. And also last week, when we studied the people of God and the spirit of God, we looked at the final words of Jesus right before him going to the cross. And he's, he's sort of giving his final instructions, seeking to take care of his disciples who are really dependent on him. His kind of final words to his disciples. You know, you can learn a lot about someone based on their last words. You know, we don't have a lot of time, so you kind of know what's important to them, don't you? By the final things that they say, they're not going to be like, yeah, so, you know, what do you think about, you know, Lakers or Clippers? Who's it going to be, you know? I mean, there's not a lot of that. It's usually what's most important. And in 2 Timothy 3, you know, we don't have uh, exact, um, precise dates here. Um, we don't know if the Apostle Paul, at, at the end of 2 Timothy 3, we, we, we don't know if he has, I don't know, uh, hours, days, it's, it's certainly clear. It doesn't seem like he has weeks or months. The way he says it is, I finished my race. That's what he ends it with, my, my time's at hand. And he's giving his last words to Timothy, just like Jesus to his disciples, and he talks about the Holy Spirit. Here's Paul giving his last words to Timothy. It's almost like, imagine this, you're with Paul at his deathbed. What a cool place to be. And you're like, okay, Paul, I'm a, you're, at, you're finishing your race. I'm starting my race. You've gone before me. This is a great thing to have in your life, by the way, someone who can pour into you in that way. And you say, okay, Paul, you, you fought the fight. You're finishing the race. You've kept the faith. Helped me, someone who's holding the faith right now and wants to keep it. Someone who started the race and wants to finish it. Someone who's fighting the fight and is struggling with victory, right? Imagine if Paul could speak into your life. What would he say? Well, we know what he would say. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. He tells Timothy... He says that you, Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, 
purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, and persecutions, afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, look at this, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. I love how blunt Paul is at the end of his life. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's going to be the culture you're in, Timothy. But you, verse 14, must, must, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that even from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, Timothy, is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Chapter 4, I charge you therefore, Timothy, before God, look at this charge, and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. I don't even know what all that means. It just means like, dude, watch out. This is happening. Look at this. I charge you in in light of him, verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season, and in 2019, out of season, it seems like. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching, for the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, Timothy, you, Christian, be watchful in all things. Endure those afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Timothy, one of the hardest things that's, that's uh, going to keep you from fulfilling your ministry, from fighting your fight, from keeping the faith, from finishing the race, one of the hardest things is that it's not going to be popular. Most people are going to, he says, grow worse and worse. This is called total depravity, downward downward spiral. He says the longer you're around, the more you're going to see that people, their hearts are going to turn away from God's word because God's word calls for submission and surrender. It calls for like the people of Israel to be broken and tenderhearted. And the tendency because of that natural sinful Uh, proclivity of humanity is for us to sort of heap up for ourselves teachers who can have a form of godliness and sort of have a sprinkle of truth but altogether deny the authority of scripture or today um i think i think like my passion and this is hard because i mean i have a heart to lock arms with the body of christ i hate when satan brings division in the church um Yet in my attempts to do that, it's hard to navigate that sometimes. It just is. Because there is a degree to which you go, we talked about last week, like I, don't, I don't unite with you doctrinally. Maybe it's a difference, maybe it's not. And today what's so hard is I'm finding that um, today in the church, it's not so much that it's false doctrine, but it's a lack of sound doctrine. Like, you cannot say, this is false doctrine, but what is, okay, you didn't tell me a lie, but why don't you tell me the truth? And so, like, listen, I'm kind of, like, holding back a little bit, but, um, you know, God, I want to be led by you, but 
you know, I feel like even in some ways, like, I, I feel like I'm savvy enough. I don't mean to boast. But I, I know some ways to get a crowd of people. Okay? Here's one. Ready? 25-minute sermons. You're like, Andrew, stop talking about that. That sounds appealing, okay? <laughs> Let's pour all of our resources into an environment that stimulates, that energizes. And listen, I'm not against becoming all things to all men. Like, I, we have cool I want more cool lights, you know? I want an environment that people go, man, I feel like this is a house of, of worship, but never at the expense of why we're here. The proclamation, the understanding, and the application of what God Almighty has said. That's crazy. Think about that. So, so I'd rather be this wide but this deep. If it means that we're going to set our hearts to study, to know God's word. I just think this is, this is by the way... If I'm ranting about this, you're like, Andrew, it seems to be something you value. It's something we value as a church. It's one of our core values, that we hold the scriptures high. That we devote ourselves to the study and application of the word. We, we, we don't, listen, we don't create a false dichotomy. If right now you're like, oh my gosh, Andrew, you're a Bible thumper, father, son, holy Bible kind of person. All right, listen to last week's sermon. Understand that we care for the move and the work of the Holy Spirit, but we understand that God's spirit, it hovers over the waters of God's word. And God's spirit, his voice, the Bible says it thunders, his voice is over the waters of God's word. So we believe when we study God's word, it's interesting today, people create like even this false dichotomy today in the church where it's like, you know, like, are you like a Bible church or like a Holy Spirit church? What? Those are not mutually exclusive. Those are interdependent. You can't be a Bible church if, or you can't be a Bible church if you don't care about the Holy Spirit. It's a lot of churches try to be today. You can't be a Holy Spirit church without the word of God. There's an interdependence there. So that's what we're after here, a hunger for God's word. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. This is so central. This is so important. This is so vital. You've you got to make sure, Timothy, in the last days, there's going to be this tendency. They have itch, it's itching ears. You ever had an itching ear, legitimately? You're like, I need a Q-tip. You ever had that? I know it's gross. But we've all been there. Come on. Anybody human in here? Okay, good. A couple of you? Two humans, good to see you humans, all right? And you're like, ah, it itches. Okay. Now, those itches that we want to instantly relieve spiritually are often indicators spiritually of, of, of where our hearts are at. And God goes, that itch that you want to scratch, um, instead of instantly relieving it, come to me and let me speak into your ear. And we don't, it's harder to do that because i got to submit to you then, God. So we want to raise up, okay, I need some entertaining. I need some more comedy. I need more stories. Give me more stories. I need just like tell me 20, what happened in your week? Now, sometimes I tell you way too many stories. But you get the idea. It's like I, I, I need something to, I need something psychological, practical. And, and it's as if Paul, at the end of his life, he's like, Timothy, dude. There is nothing more beautiful that you can hold up in your life than the word of God. It's like a beautiful diamond that's multifaceted. You can take year, you can take four weeks and just study the Lord's Prayer. You, you, can just, you, you can just look at it and that's the call of our lives in Scripture. Now, I think a really important question that, and also Tim, uh, Paul answers this for Timothy, and, 
And for us too, and maybe like today, maybe if, if the word of God is lost in our lives, I think it could be directly connected to our lack of understanding of what God's word is. And that is also a major objective that I, I want to communicate. And so here's a good question. What is the Bible? Like, so when we're talking about the word of God, it brings revival and restoration to the people of God. Um, so, so what do we mean? And what does Paul mean when he says that? Um, now, uh, I'm not going to get through all of these, but let me give you a couple big ideas about the Bible. Write this one down to understand what the Bible is. What do we mean by studying God's word? We want to start with this understanding that, that, really simple, the Bible, first and foremost, is a diverse library of ancient writings, okay? So I, I, earlier I talked about the word and itching ears, and we got to study, the, so what are we talking about here, okay? Uh, this is a great place to start. Let's just start simple. Not enough Christians start here. They're just like, you know, the Bible, the, what is the Bible, okay? Um, the Bible is a book that is a diverse library of ancient writings, and even in that first point, what we're communicating is that the Bible isn't just a book. All right, Paul tells Timothy, he kind of speaks to the historic nature of it. He says, Timothy, we, we read it there, right? You must continue the things that you've learned from childhood. Anybody learn the Bible from childhood? I'm just curious. Anybody else in here like Timothy and me? And McGee and me too? All right. Does anybody know who McGee and me is? Come on, Justin. All right, McGee and me, that's church folk right there. That's, that's, that's a church guy, okay? Church kids. Hallelujah night instead of Halloween. Are you with me? Okay. Um, so you kind of, what Paul is saying to Timothy, just like us, this is a historic book. You've learned since childhood. But this book, we need to understand that first and foremost, it's not simply a book. It's a library of books. Do we know this? This, this is, most, most of us know this, but let's just cover this. Um, think of a library. This is Spanish River uh, Library right across the street. My favorite library here in Boca. There's two of them. <laughs> this is the better one. All right. Um, and, you, you know, you walk into a library. It's not just a, li it's a collection, a series of sections with different genres and different authors, and that's what we have with the Bible. In fact, I want you to turn to a place with me real quick. This is a place in your Bible that you've never been asked to turn to in church. Would you turn with me to the table of contents real quick, okay? All right, what you're gonna do is you're gonna go to the table of contents and it's there, okay? Um, the table of contents. I just go there for a second. I want us to visualize this. We get so familiar with the Bible that I think we become unfamiliar with what it is. It's a library. Let's just view the library for a second. When you look at your table of contents, uh, you get this idea that the, the Bible is not so much a book as much as it's a bookshelf. It's more of a bookshelf. Here's a picture of the Bible as a bookshelf. You're seeing it there in your table of contents. And it's broken up. Uh, there's di over the years, there have been different divisions. For example, Jesus' Old Testament was actually broken up in a different way than our modern New Testament. The point is that we have the same Old Testament as Jesus. And uh, we've had the same New Testament for centuries, for millennia. Um, but when you look at the Bible in its form that it's in here, you have this bookshelf of all sorts of different things. You have 66 books in your Bible. Out of those 66 books, 39 of them are Old Testament, the Old Covenant, God's dealings with Israel. 27 of them are, are God's dealings with his church through Israel. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes is that we separate the Old and the New Testaments, like the Old and the New, and our Bibles have it that way. But uh, a, did you know this, that a large percentage of the New Testament is the Old Testament? People are like, why is the New and the other? It's, it's one thing. It's one, it, we break it up into Old and New, two sections. Now, with this bookshelf, this library, you have, listen, you have 40 contributing authors. That's insane. 40 contributing authors that are contributing to this diverse library of ancient writings. Uh, these 40 authors, they come from a 1,500-year period. 
1,500 years of 40 people contributing to our modern-day canon of Scripture, okay? Um, with those 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years, you would imagine you get a variety of different cultural backgrounds, perspectives. You get a variety of different languages, time frames. Uh, it's like today. Like even today, if you speak to someone like two generations ago, right? The, it's funny, the values, what used to matter back then that doesn't matter today or what didn't matter back then, what should matter more today. Imagine that over a 1,500-year period, right? And all of these people, all, all, all 40 of them, contributing, I think this is the most important thing, a variety of different literary styles, okay? The scripture is not just written in Pauline epistle form. This is so huge. The Bible is, is this beautiful, diverse library of ancient writings. Uh, let's just walk through some of them. You have the law, right? The Torah given to, uh, given to Moses, given to the people of Israel um, there at Mount Sinai, and then Moses continuing, inspired by God. Uh, and I love so much of the law and these writings is, is just something happening, and like this is how the Bible comes into existence. Um, so human, by the way, so human. God's like, hey, write that down, Moses, so you guys don't forget it. He's like, okay writes it down, it's like the Bible. Like, that's literally how it, how it happens. Sometimes there's multiple people contributing even to one book in the Bible. It might say Jeremiah, but you go to sleep, you're like, wow, there's like six people that contributed to this book. You ever read in Proverbs, where like, it's like, it's the, the Proverbs of Solomon. You ever read in chapter 31 where it's like, oh, what's the guy's name, Le, King Lemael, Lemael, and it's like the words that his mother taught him? It's like some guy's mom gave him a bunch of advice and it's in the Bible. I mean, we should probably all write a book of the Bible for, for, with our moms, right? We can't, though. I'll get to that. Um, you have law. You have history. History, the history of Israel. You have poetry. You have poetry. You have the, pro the major and the minor prophets, right? I, I love the prophets kind of speaking the black and white truth of God. And a lot of the prophets are poets. A lot of the poets are prophets. But you have this great blend of, like, black and white truth. And then what the Psalms do and the poets do, they help us sort of make sense of the human experience of God. You ever had to read the Psalms? Because, like, you read so much of Ezekiel or something, and you're just like, oh, black and white, okay, I need to repent. And you're just like, but you're going through hard stuff, and you're like, this black and whiteness is not really helping me make sense of what I'm walking through. I need a poet right now. I need a good song to help me kind of experience the human, you know, emotion of what I'm going. Just look at the variety of different literary styles. The major prophets... And the minor prophets, those poor minor prophets. Yeah, you're the minors, you know. No, okay. Minor prophet, it's been said, still major message, all right. You have the prophets. Then you get to the Gospels, a 400-year period. You get to the New Testament. Matthew is this incredible bridge from the Old to the New. There are more references to, to the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew than any other. Constantly throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you hear, thus it was fulfilled, thus it was fulfilled. That's the Gospel of Matthew bridging the old to the new through the person of Jesus Christ. Here in the Gospels, you have the history of the church. You have Paul's letter. You have the book of Hebrews, which stands out sort of like a sore thumb, th uh, thumb the more you study it. You have letters to the church uh, from other apostles. And then you have uh, the book, the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing to read it that nobody reads, the book of Revelation, okay? The book of Revelation. Do, do you get the idea here? Look at the wide variety. I think we can be way too simplistic, and, and probably it's because of the form that our Bible comes in. It's like, here it is. It's the Bible. And it's such a, it, we're talking about thousands of years. We're talking about 40 authors, but a variety of different contributors that have led 
to this library of ancient writing. Now, here's what I wanted to point out through all this. Here's what's amazing. And I don't want to steal Bill Schott's thunder this Thursday, but I'm going to take a little thunder, okay? Um, just the un poco thunder here. I, I got to do this. What's amazing is that throughout all of these writings, there is a unified story. This is incredible. You, you read the Bible and you also see this, that the Bible is a unified story, specifically of four main parts. This is amazing. I mean, come on. Try to get three people in the same generation speaking the same language to agree on the same thing. Now try to do it with 40 people over a period of 1,500 years speaking multiple languages, coming from different cultural backgrounds, coming from different cultural values, and, and take all the writings of those people and put them together and have it form this perfect unified puzzle story that has like, and it's like a movie. You ever been to the movie that's like, it's so good, but then like it ends bad? Or it like starts bad, but then it gets good? Or it's like really good, but then it gets like really boring? And then it gets really, right? The Bible, it's like, a, it's a masterpiece Literary, the, the story of it's incredible. How does 40 people contribute to a work like this and it turn out to be such a unified story? It's as if someone superintended it. Now, what we're talking about here when we read the Bible is what's called the meta narrative of Scripture. This is huge. Uh, again, that the Bible is a unified story of four main parts, uh, meaning that the Bible has a meta narrative. A meta narrative, there's some postmodern implications of this world, of this word, but, but a secondary definition of meta narrative would understand it this way that a meta narrative is an overarching storyline that provides context, meaning, and purpose to everything else. It's like trying to watch one of the Marvel movies without any of the others. Don't do it, okay? All right, you, you, you want to start with the Avengers, maybe with, um, what's the first one? Iron Man. Come on, don't, stop acting like you're not a Marvel nerd like me, okay? You get the idea, right? You, you gotta, it, it, it's a, there's, a meta, there's a big story. Now, the Bible is not a collection of, listen, the, we treat the Bible like a fortune cookie. We're like, whoa, what, what could it teach me to... When we read the Bible outside of its overarching story, we end up placing ourselves at the center of it. It's often what we do. We sort of tailor the Bible to what I want and what I want God to say. But there's a, there's a major story going on. Um, it's, it's incredible. Uh, this major story is, is emphasized by the fact that the scriptures, I think this is important to know, uh, the scriptures itself are 44% of the Bible is narrative. Do we know this? You have 33% of it being poetic books. 23% is prose discourse, instruction, counsel, Deuteronomy. You have uh, the Pauline epistles. Look at this. Did you know this? 44%, a majority of the Bible is telling a story. Like, you go, okay, Andrew, what, what's the point? We forget this. Like, the first, it, it's given away in the first verse. In the beginning. I love that. This is how it begins. With in, like, that sounds like a beautiful story. It's like if you opened up a, in the beginning, it's like it's amazing. And, and I think this is God speaking to how he's wired us as humanity, as imaginative creatures, as story form beings. How did Jesus speak? He spoke in parables. He told stories. It captures the imagination. It's why you will binge watch an entire season of stranger things in a day, okay? 
We sit, and I've heard people say this, like people talk about, well, the reason, Andrew, why you need to preach shorter messages is because the human attention span is 17 minutes. Okay, I'm sure that's true with some study you read. My attention span at this season of Stranger Things was a lot longer than 17 minutes. And here's why. I was captivated by the story. Is it that we have a weak attention span or is it that we don't grasp the captivation of the story of God? I think if we really grasped how beautiful and overarching and amazing this story is, we would be blown away. The Bible tells a story. In the beginning, God, and I, I want to point this, this out, that the Bible tells a story. And here's the, the important question, isn't it? What's the story about? It's a great question. Like if someone were to come up to you and they were to say, hey, I see you have a Bible in your hand. You're there at the coffee shop. You're reading your word. And someone says, hey, what, what, what is that? That's a Bible, right? Yeah, it's a Bible. Oh, you still, which by the way, like, it's kind of funny. Like what other human culture sits around reading leather-bound books in the 20th? I just think if you just stop for a second, it's okay to like go, like this is kind of, un it's not normal. Like, if you're there the other day and someone's reading just like a couple-page leather-bound book, it's unusual. It's a little bit. So what are you reading? What is that leather-bound book that you're uncovering there? What is that leather-bound book about? Okay, most books have like a cover. Like, here we are with our leather-bound Bibles. What is that book? What, what is that story about? I, I want you to think for a second. What would you say? Just think. What is the Bible about? Well, again, you don't have to wonder. Genesis tells you. In the beginning, who? God. So this is, uh, this is the author giving us an understanding that we're about to embark on an incredible story. This is the, also, uh, the, uh, the author also indicating who the star of the story is. In the beginning, God. The, this is something that I think could help us a long way. I've written this in my Bible. If you want to do this, you can, or write it on a sticky note. This is so important. Understand this. The Bible is a story about God and his goodness. What's that book about? It's about God and his goodness. The Bible is a story about God and his goodness, and uh, this is also huge because when we remember this, what we're able to do is let the Bible speak for itself and not insert ourselves into the story. Like in so much of modern and even historic Bible teaching has us at the center. Like I grew up like, man, I need to be more like King David. You know, there I am behind the... Uh, the wall with all the Israelites. I need to beat my Goliath. And listen, there's imagery that you could, the, the, the scriptures were written for practice, but there's a greater story in David and Goliath. That greater story is all of us are the ones hiding behind the rock crying, but God sent someone through the line of David named Jesus who defeated the Goliath of death. It's amazing how when you start looking at the Bible as being about God and you take yourself out of it, it actually does more for you. Because we are most alive when God is most at the center and most exalted. It's incredible how that works. So this story about God and his goodness, I said it earlier, it has four, it's a unified story, right, with four main parts, four main parts. Here are the main parts of the story. Here's the whole Bible in four parts, okay? Or you could say four acts or four scenes, okay? You have creation, you have decreation, you have recreation, and you have new creation. Uh, some people have described it as creation, fall, Redemption, restoration, that's certainly true. Uh, but this is another way to think about it. All of these scenes, by the way, they display who God is and how good he is. That's what it's about. So does creation display who God is and how good he is? What did he say after everything that he made? It's good. How can, can good things 
come from something broken and evil? That per- no, God, he's good. And we see him putting man and Adam and Eve in the garden. It's good, man. Genesis 1 and 2, good. Good stuff going on. Now, decreation, this is the fall in the created order. It gets shattered and broken, and it falls apart through sin. So what God creates starts to kind of downward spiral, doesn't it? Decreation. Now, here's a question. How is God good in decreation? Now, we could say, well, he's good all the time, even when man is, is wrong. But actually, the truth of, of, the, of the entire Old Testament is how good God is, despite how broken humanity is. So even though Adam and Eve, they corrupted God's, I mean, like, just yesterday, I was playing basketball in front of my house with my brother-in-law, Roberto, and I, um, I did, like, one of those, like, half-court, like, Curry, Kobe, I like, shot it, and it bounced off the rim, and it just shattered <sighs> Judah's freshly created Lego truck. It was, oh, it was bad. It was really bad. I was crying, okay? Um, Judah was, was crying a little bit, okay? A lot of it. Um, and just imagine that, right? I mean, this Judah, and it was because he just made this. He was, and that's what he kept saying. I put so much work in it, so I, you know, I rebuilt it. I'm not a perfect dad, but I'm somewhat of, I love him. So this is God and his goodness. Despite the creation that God makes, and despite how humanity breaks it, here's how good God is. God makes a promise. Even though you have broken what I've created, I'm so good that I promise that I'll recreate this. And that's what you see him doing all throughout the Old Testament. It's a project of recreation. I'm, I'm going to create a people again for myself who are going to be a light to those around them. And then here's where you get the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is that humanity cannot fix what they themselves have broken. But God is a God who fixes what we've broken. And so you have recreation through the person of Jesus. And then in the end, you have this good hope that all things will be made new through new creation. That's the goodness of God's restoration of all things. This, all the scriptures, it's really important that when you're reading the Bible, this is huge. You want to ask yourself the question, where does this page or this moment, uh, what scene or act does this fall into? And what part does that play in the larger story? All right, you guys with me? Still with me, two of you, good, all right. We'll keep going then. All right. Now, as these, these different acts tell the main story about God, what you see is also that the Bible is a complex portrait of one person. A, a diverse library of ancient writings telling one unified story in four main parts. All of those scenes starring and revealing one person. And it's the answer to every VBS question. His name is Jesus. So that when Jesus resurrects from the grave, the Bible tells us in Luke 24 that beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to his disciples and all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. I love in John 5 when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. They're the, the seminarians of the day. And Jesus speaking to the Pharisees he says that you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. You see, scripture is a complex portrait of one person. It's like a mosaic. You ever seen a mosaic? All these different pieces. You take all 66 pieces of the Bible, you get a portrait of Jesus. Portrait of Jesus. And it's progressive. It's what we would call progressive revelation. That, that's what the Bible is. The Bible records what God has revealed really simple. 
The Bible records, think about that again, the Bible records what God has revealed. You can go back to, I think it's our first or second week talking about God. We established this principle that the only way for anybody to know anything about God is if he was willing to reveal himself. We don't stumble across him like an island out in the Pacific Ocean. Okay, or we don't find him like a Hamlet discovers Shakespeare by climbing up to the top of the set. Shakespeare must write something about himself where? Into the story. And he has. And he's done it progressively. Uh, I love what Hebrews says, though. Hebrews says that God, I got disconnected here. Can you put up the verse in Hebrews, buddy? Thanks. Oh, I'm back. And we back. And we back. All right. Hebrews says that God at various times and in various ways, look at this, has spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets. He has in these last days spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he has also made the world. This is amazing. So remember John's gospel, Jesus comes along, and he is the word who is with God. Everything was made through him, and this Jesus, who is the word of God, he what? Becomes flesh. He dwells among us. It's God revealed in a person. This is what God has done throughout history. The Bible says one day, check this out, the Bible says one day at, at restoration, when the, when the curtain closes on this story and eternities to follow, the Bible says that our eyes are going to be peeled back and opened and we're going to see Jesus for who he is. Let me talk about progressive revelation. By the way, you don't just have to wait from, from now until then to get that. Do you know that? You know a great way to read the Bible is to say, God, you've spoken through your son Jesus. Open up my eyes to see him in a fresh way. That's the best way to study the Bible. God, help me not be so self-centered and put me at the center. Let this word be solus Christus. Let me see you, Jesus, and no one else. Open up my eyes to behold your beauty. It's a complex portrait of one person. This is huge. The Bible, Timothy, goes on to be told by Paul that it is also a preserved collection of inspired words. So we're building here. All right? It's, a ancient, it's a diverse library of ancient writings, it's a unified story of four main parts. It's a complex portrait of one person, namely Jesus. And Paul tells Timothy that it is a preserved collection of inspired words. This is like ground zero for biblical doctrine, by the way. Um, it's the understanding of what Paul describes to Timothy when he says this. He says, uh, verse 15, that from childhood, Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.15, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You see how the Bible is all about Jesus right there. Verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's what he says. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. He uses this really unique Greek word, theonutos, theonutos, and it means God-breathed. We, we translate it inspired, uh, which is good, but I think the word inspired usually means like if someone inspires you, you're like, they like breathe into you, they like encourage you, you're like, hmm, you know, you get like a fresh wind, you know, and, and that's, that's inspiration, but the idea of God inspiring scripture is not just that he breathed into it, but the idea is that the words of scripture were breathed out by God, which means to communicate, right, you, you can't um, communicate without exhaling, try to inhale and say something at the same time. <laughs> I don't want you to do that. I want you to fall over and die, okay? Don't do that. It's a horrible idea, right? <laughs> You're all trying it right now. Watch to your neighbor, okay? You're like, go ahead. You know what? Do it. Go ahead. Try to inhale and say hi to your neighbor. Go. Weird, right? Okay. What did you learn in church today, okay? God breathed. God breathed. Now, what's interesting is, by the way, this is, this is not something foreign to Timothy. Earlier, Paul was, as a, as a Jew, 
Earlier, Paul was telling Timothy, you know, you were raised on the Holy Scriptures. That's the Old Testament. And Jesus himself affirmed the authority of the Old Testament as being this unique dichotomy, I should say this unique paradox, it's almost not the best word, um, but it's this, this un, rather unity is probably the best word, of being thoroughly 100% human and yet thoroughly 100% divine. So that Jesus himself, he came to fulfill the law. He put himself under the law. Have you ever seen this picture of the drawing hands? I think this is a great visual of the Bible. A lot of times what we do, it's almost like which hand is drawing the other. A lot of times what we do with the Bible is we make it one hand. We're like, oh, God wrote the Bible. And so our picture of inspiration is like a bunch of dudes in robes who got like zapped by the Holy Spirit. And they're like, you know, like, you know, all right. Like that's kind of how we think of it. It's very stranger things. Okay. It's like, that's how we think of it. it it's, we, we think that they're just kind of in a trance. We, we make it like a little, um, maybe we make it all divine and no human. We do this with Jesus, too, who is both, right? 100% God, 100% man. We do this with the Bible. Or we make the scripture all human. And can I tell you, the more you study the Bible, what's probably the hardest thing about really concluding how inspired it is by God is how human it is. When you really, like, like I did some studies, like, wow, that, that's a, did you, did you know that the book of Jeremiah, it went through multiple editions? Like the first one that was written was brought to the king and the king threw it in the fire. And then Jeremiah had like, oh gosh, he had to get to his scribe and he had to dictate the whole thing all over again. So where was I? Okay, um, before you were born in the womb, I formed you? Was it formed or born? Which came? I mean, think about this. You start to get, and listen, what I love about the Bible is it's not a scandal, by the way. The Bible doesn't hide this. I love like at the end of like Paul's letters where he's like, there'll be... Um, at the end of Romans, for example, you get the true author of Romans. It's not Paul. It's a guy named, I think it's Tychicus. And he's like, hey, it's Tychicus. He actually says that at the end of Romans. Like, hey, it's me. Right? He like peeks out for a second, like behind the curtain. And Paul is dictating the, the words. Now, here's what I'm trying to get at. The Bible is a lot more human than we can make it. But it's, it's, it's this. Right? Which hand is drawing the other? And again, it comes usually to the answer of yes. Yes. They are drawing each other. Fully inspired by God. Here's the way that Second Peter says it. It says, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word there, moved, is, is a nautical term that describes a ship that has a course set. It needs its, it needs its, uh, it needs its sails up, rather, and it needs the direction set. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a wind that comes and moves it where it needs to go. It's a nautical term, Okay. Uh, this is how the, book of the, the books of the Bible became inspired by God, breathed out by God, so that this, they're thoroughly human. It's, it's not the trance, it's not that. It's David, like, in a field being like, God, where are you? And God's inspiring that. He's actually being moved by the Spirit. 100% human, 100% divine. Now, the, the, the easy part here is the Old Testament, uh, because Jesus affirmed the Old Testament, uh, but I, I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 16. He says, all scripture. This is huge. This is different than what he previously said. He talked about whole, the holy scriptures that Timothy was raised in. 
But he's saying now, he's using this word all distinctively. He's saying, Timothy, it's not just the Old Testament scriptures that, that you were raised in. It's also all scripture has been given by inspiration of God. The word scripture, it's the word grapha. It's used 51 times in the Bible. And every time the word scripture is used, it's used to refer to a divinely inspired writing. Something divine, a divine writing. And what's really interesting about this is that um, Peter calls, uh, there's a couple examples of this, but in 2 Peter 3, Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. In 1 Timothy, Paul quotes, this is really interesting, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul qu quotes um, Deuteronomy alongside of Luke's gospel. Did you know that? In 1 Timothy, Paul quotes the gospel of Luke. And he puts it uh, right next to each other with equal authority. And this is, is something that the early church believed. The way that, um, that it's it said in Ephesians is that as the church, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That, that's the word of God. That's our foundation that the apostles and the prophets had. Uh, remember last week, this is because Jesus, when he was departing, promising his spirit, he said, said to the disciples, these things I've spoken to you will be being present with you. Remember the disciples, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Look at this. He will teach you, this is huge right here, all things. Um, I trust the Bible, by the way, because I, just, I trust Jesus. I don't trust Jesus because I trust the Bible. I follow Jesus. And if Jesus speaks about the, the apostles, as broken as they were, as being sufficient to be instructed by the Holy Spirit in all things, to remember all the things that Jesus said, like you ever wondered, like how did the gospel writers remember this stuff? Jesus tells us. His Spirit. My spirit's going to fill you and, ins and, and empower you to write what you'll write. And then he, I love how it says in, in John, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You can barely hear what I'm saying right now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So this is what we have with the person of Jesus. We have this affirmation of the Old Testament scriptures being inspired by God and authoritative. And we have Jesus prophesying, speaking to the disciples that they too, as the apostles, would be the foundation of the church. The Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would write, moved by the Holy Spirit. The helper would guide them into all truth. And I love Acts 1 because Jesus shows up resurrected, hangs out with them for 40 days. And, and I, there's this little sneaky verse in Acts 1-1 that says that Jesus... He spoke to them the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Imagine that sermon. Hanging out with resurrected Jesus talking about the things of the kingdom of God. Like, hey, I'm back and I got some things to tell you, okay? And then what happens? The spirit comes, the church is birthed, and what do you find the church doing in Acts 2? They continue steadfastly in the apostles' what? Doctrine. You see this? It's God continuing his promise to, to, to inspire his, his word. And I, what I love about this is the preservation of it. Uh, 2,000 years later, we are still reading and studying and giving our lives to the inspired word of God. The word of God is not going anywhere. And because it's promised. <laughs> Psalm 12 says, The words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of the earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation even till 2019. Remember Pierce Morgan saying on CNN, the Bible is just, it's, it's, here it comes, kicking and screaming into the 21st century. No, it's not. The 21st century is kicking and screaming because the Bible won't go away. You ever heard of a guy named Voltaire? 
secular atheist French philosopher. Um, Voltaire, the, f- the famous French philosopher, he was a brilliant atheist. He wrote a number of tracts, counter tracts, to, de- to deride and, and denounce the Bible. And he once made a very bold statement on the front of his porch of his house. He said, 100 years from now, today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. Uh, after Voltaire died, check us out, nearly 100 years later, his house was used as a depository for the French Bible Society. They sold Bibles out of his house. It's now a museum. Pe- people have forgotten Voltaire. No one will forget the word of God because all flesh is grass, but the word of God endures forever. It started, it started happening. Let's see. There it is. Okay. There it is. Okay. All right. I wanna, I'll, I'll close with this. In light of the Bible being authoritative, here's where I'll send us out today. Um, there are some implications of this. I wish I could get into how the Bible is a source for authoritative truth. I'll just say it is. This speaks to its inerrancy and its infallibility. It cannot, it, it cannot, it cannot bring error because it cannot fail because it's breathed out by God. Uh, but I want to close with this idea that the Bible is a, spiritual, is a powerful tool of spiritual formation. Um, this is why we, like the people of Israel, should be those that put ourselves low under God's word. Because it is the powerful means through which God rules. Like any king, kings rule through their word. And God accomplishes his purposes in our lives. He forms us into his image. Listen, there is no spiritual growth without God's word. Because his word is a powerful tool. Here's our memory verse this week. It's living and powerful. Amen? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. In in Jeremiah, it's called a hammer. It's a tool in God's hand that chips away at the... At the rough edges, it, it, it sharpens us. It cuts between the divisions even of soul and spirit, of joints and marrows. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That, that's the call of God's word. Jesus said it this way. He said, he prayed, God, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. May they be sanctified by your word. We see this all throughout the Bible. We see the Bible called the pure milk of the word. We're called with the pure milk of the word to hunger for it desperately. Do you hunger for God's word? Like a newborn baby is hungry for pure milk from their mom. Do you hunger for God's word? The Bible is called solid food. We're called to feast on it and be nourished by it. There's the mirror of God's word. We're called to to look into it reflectively, not just to show off how much I know, but it's a mirror that shows me Jesus and therefore shows me myself. It's a seed, the seed of the word that's planted in our hearts. We're called to receive it humbly. Here's a question today. How's the soil of your heart when it comes to the word? It's called a lamp and a light. We're called to walk by it practically, to be guided by it spiritually. It's called the sword of the word. I love that. You don't go into battle without a sword. Do you go into life without your Bible, without God's word? Uh, Satan is much stronger than us, but we see Jesus in, the, in his temptation. How is he defending and fighting off the enemy? It's through quoting God's word, memorizing, meditating on God's word, the water of God's word. I love that. Ephesians 5, the washing. We're called to be washed by it spiritually. Jesus said, you're already clean because of the words that I've spoken to you. Some of us, we're trying to get clean so that we can read our Bibles, but what we need to do is read our Bibles so that we can get clean. That's what happens. And lastly, the fire of God's word. When you know that you've been really impacted by God's word, what happens is it's not just good news to you, it starts to burn up inside of you. And you start walking it out. 
you start speaking. Just like James says, the tongue can be a deadly fire. God sets your tongue on fire with his word. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.